As Brother Nathan said, it's really good to see everybody today. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we hope that you've been blessed thus far in this service, and we hope that you're blessed by the study of the morning. As, uh, as you may have remembered, I sent out a text the other day to read Joshua chapter 22, and if you read that chapter, you might have felt like I did and looking at this and going, this is a very unique story. This is a very unique time in Israel's history, and we're going to walk through some of that uh, and then we're going to kind of go through a summarization of what Brother Monty Paul read for us this morning. Uh, and then we're going to go a little further into the story. So I'm going to try to go through this kind of quickly as we're going to use this story as a framework for our study. And we're going to continue to come back to it uh, as we go along this morning. So just for a moment, let's understand what's going on here. The three tribes that are mentioned here are the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and then half of the tribe of Manasseh. As you see, uh, here's the Jordan River that divided the promised land from the land that these three inherited. And this actually goes back to the book of Numbers where these three tribes actually asked to take that, that piece of land before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And part of the agreement that they had to make in order to get this land was they had to agree to go in to the promised land and war with their brethren. And that was part of it. He said, okay, you can have this land over here, but are you going to sit over here while we all go to war? And they said, no, we'll go to war with you. So they all went to war. So what we're reading in Joshua 22 is they're done with that war. And now they're in Shiloh, which is this area right here, which is Silo, Shiloh, it's the same word, uh, same name rather. And as they leave Shiloh, they're telling them, okay, you fulfilled your oath, you can go back and possess your land. And so there was something they didn't think about, that they apparently thought about sometime either on the journey or after they got there. And what they started thinking about was, you know, now that we've separated ourselves from the promised land, our brethren are going to forget that we're part of God's people. And so they build an altar. Now that's strange. It's very strange to me. But they decide they're going to build an altar because they're worried that they're going to forget that these are God's people. So what happens, I want to just run through this quickly just to kind of paint a picture of what's happened here. They build this altar and then somebody, I don't know who, it just says someone went and they told the people in Shiloh, they told the children of Israel that that Gad and Manasseh are half the tribe of Manasseh, and Reuben had built an altar. So what happens? Well, they assume the worst. Oh, they're going to start worshiping idols. They're going to start worshiping false gods. And so they gather all the people together, and they're ready to go to war with these three tribes who have been with them and just conquered, 30, overthrown 31 kings. They've all fought this battle together. They're ready to go to war against these guys because they hear... They built an altar. Well, that's not the end of the story. They decide to send Phineas, and Phineas was the priest. This is actually uh, Aaron's grandson. Phineas is the son of Eleazar, which was the priest, which was Aaron's son. And they send ten rulers. Each one of these ten rulers represented the ten tribes, or really nine and a half tribes, that were over in the promised land. And they're going to go over there, and this is actually a commandment from God. If you go back to Deuteronomy 13, it actually says that if you hear that one of... If, if, one of your brothers, if their city uh, starts worshiping idols, you go and you send people over there and you inquire to see what's going on. And if you find out they're worshiping false gods, you decimate them. You destroy the entire city. You destroy all the people. And you burn all of their, all of their possessions so they never rebuild a city again. So that's where we're headed, okay? 
They've got everybody in Shiloh ready to go to war. They're going to go and see if they're really in idolatry. Why? Because if they are, they're going to bring the masses in and they're going to destroy Reuben and Gad Manasseh. So you can see this is a very sticky situation. So Eleazar and the ten go and they start asking questions. And when they get there, here's what Phineas says. Why are you rebelling against God? He doesn't even ask them. He just assumes that's what's happening. And so he says, why are you committing this treachery against the God of Israel to build an altar other than the altar that's at the tabernacle of God? So he begins to, to lay out what they believe is going on. So he, he just begins to tell them. He says, don't you remember what happened in Peor? Now, if you don't remember the story about Peor, this is in Numbers chapter 25. And these two characters right here are sort of notable characters in that story because as they're going through, they end up in the land of Moab and some of the men of Israel start committing harlotry with the Midianite women. And the Midianite women that they're committing harlotry with convince them, you should worship our gods. And so they start doing that. And then God sends a plague down in Israel which kills 24,000 people because they fell off into idolatry and in committing harlotry and worshiping the God of Baal. Well, guess who was there? Eleazar. Unless we think Eleazar is a pacifist, Eleazar was actually the man that stopped the plague in Peor. And let me tell you how he did it. This man Zimri and this harlot named Cosby came out and they presented themselves before Israel. And Eleazar grabs his javelin, follows him into the tent, and he kills both of them. And that stops the plague. So that's the guy who's talking here. This is not a pacifist. This is Eleazar. And he's ready to do what's necessary in order to protect Israel. And that's why they're there, because they care about Israel. And he's reminding them, don't you understand that if you do this, if you worship other gods, it's going to affect all of us. And he says, think about Achan. And if you don't remember the story of Achan, that, that's actually earlier in the book of Joshua. Uh, I believe it's Joshua 6 and 7 records about Achan. And what happened with Achan was when they went in to destroy Jericho, God said, you go in, but don't you take the spoils for yourselves. He said, those things are going to be put in the treasury of the Lord. Well, Achan makes a decision. He's going to keep some of that stuff, but he hides it. He goes and buries it in the earth. Nobody knows that Achan's done this. Until they go to Ai, or Ahi, which is how you really pronounce it. They go to this city, this next city, to conquer it. And they get driven out by, by the, the soldiers in Ahi, and 36 people die. And they go, man, we don't know what happened. The Lord's not with us. And the Lord says, well, I'll tell you why I'm not with you. Because Achan has done what I've told him not to do. Now, you may be thinking, well, why is that fair that 36 people have to die because of one man's sin? That's the way sin works. And that's what Eleazar is telling them. Your sin is not just your sin. Your sin affects everybody. Now, you can see why they're so serious about going to this altar. But here's the reality. All their concerns were for naught. But they're ready to go to war over this. But once Eleazar lays all this out and he reminds them, he actually offers, them, uh, offers to share the promised land with them. He said, look, if your land's unclean and that's why you're going to do it, well, just come over here. Don't build an altar. We'll give you our land. So Phineas is trying to make peace. He doesn't want there to be war. But the three tribes explain why they build the altar. And I want to read that briefly. Joshua 22, 21. This is picking up right after the verse that Monty Paul led, uh, read for us this morning. It says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the, the Lord God of gods, he knows, and let Israel itself know if it is rebellion or if it is treachery against the Lord. Do not save us this day. 
So here's what they said. Look, if we're really doing what you think that we're doing, then just kill us. I mean, that's pretty brazen, right? But they're trying to make a statement to just calm them down and say, look, we, we get it. We understand the implications of what you're saying, and that's not what we're doing. God knows it, and we want you to know it. And if that's what we're doing, then don't save us. He says, if we have built ourselves, verse 23, an altar to turn from following the Lord or to offer it on burnt offerings or grain offerings or to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require account. In other words, if that's what we're doing, then let God judge us. It says, but in fact, we have done it for fear. For a reason, saying in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying. Now, get this quote. This is what they're assuming that the descendants down the line will say to their people. They're worried that the ten tribes are going to come and say this about them. What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us, you children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. So this is the reason they build the altar. Because they're worried that at some point down the line, their descendants are going to come over and they're going to look at the Jordan River and they're going to see the Jordan River and go, look, these people aren't even part of us. Look what God's done. He's put this giant river here to divide them from us. We're in the promised land. They're not. And so what's their concern? Well, let's say that what they're thinking might happen actually happens. That means Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh can't go to the tabernacle and worship God. Because the people won't even recognize them as God's people. So they're concerned about that. And so they don't want them to be thinking about the Jordan River, that big dividing line between them. They want them to remember that they are actually part of them. So that's why they built the altar. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us that we may perform the service of the Lord before him. And they're talking about back at the tabernacle, not on the altar, but back in the tabernacle. They want to go serve God at the tabernacle. And they said, that's where we're going to offer our burnt offerings and our sacrifices with our peace offerings that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Now, this verse is very important. Therefore, we said that it will be when they say to this or to our generations in time to come that we may say, here is the replica of the altar of the Lord. Now, that word replica there means a facsimile. That is an exact copy. So they didn't just build an altar at the, at the Jordan River. They built an exact copy of the altar that was at the tabernacle. You say, well, what, what's it matter? Okay, so let's say that these people come over to Gad and Reuben and Manasseh and they say, you don't have any part in the Lord. You know what they'd say? Then how do we know what the altar looks like? We were there. Our fathers were there. They worshipped. They followed through the wilderness. They saw the altar over and over. They saw them build the altar. Look. Look, look at the pattern that we built. They're not going to make sacrifices on it. They're not going to burn anything on it. They just want there to be some type of symbol so when those people come there, they can say, look, we are part of you, and here's the proof. Now, strange as that may sound, that's their intention. This is the altar of witness. It's called the altar of Ed, which means witness. That's all it was for. So they explain this, and they say, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an offer for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, for sacrifices beside the altar of the Lord, our God, which is before his tabernacle. 
We're just building a replica of the altar. Nobody's going to offer sacrifice on it. So here's the interesting part. You've got these people ready to go to war. They've pretty much decided why they built the altar. They give this explanation, and then here's what happens. Phineas, the priest, and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the division of Israel who were with him, heard the words that Reuben, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, and it pleased them. They're like, oh, that's what you're doing? Well, great. This is crazy, right? They're ready to go to war, and they get there, and they go, hey, look, this is all we're doing. They go, oh, that's it? Great. They go back to Shiloh, and everybody's ready to fight. Everybody's ready to go to war. And the thing pleases the children of Israel when they hear the same thing. And listen, they spoke no more of going against them in battle. You know what they did? Once they got together, and they talked out their differences, and they figured out what was really happening, they had peace, and they had unity. In a situation that could have drastically changed Israel's history because there could have been three tribes wiped out from the 12 tribes over a misunderstanding. And that's all it was, a misunderstanding. And I want to talk to you today about preserving unity and peace. And we're going to go back to this story a few times and talk about how it relates to this story that we read in Joshua and we talked about unity a couple of months ago and how unity is one of the ways that we as God's people bear fruit to the glory of God. It is a glorious thing in the eyes of God. It's a wonderful and a beautiful thing for his people to dwell together in unity. But unity doesn't just happen. You see a congregation of God's people that are united, it takes work, it takes effort. We're going to go through two passages just to begin and then we're going to kind of summarize those and put them together and see how they join up. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering bearing with one another. And then he says in love. Endeavoring. That word endeavoring. What do you think of when you hear the word endeavoring? Working toward. That's what he means, working toward what? To keep or to maintain or preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We'll come back to this in just a moment. I first want to go to Colossians 3.12 before we do. This is very similar. It almost reads word for word with a couple of additions. Colossians 3.12-15. Therefore is the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Now he adds this, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now look at verse 15. And the peace of God, let the peace of God rule in your heart to which you were called in one body. What's the point? What's he calling them to? To be united. And to have peace within the body. And he gives us seven foundations for preserving unity and peace within the body. Now, we read four of those in Ephesians chapter 4, and I know these look like different words, lowliness and humility, gentleness and meekness. They're actually the exact same Greek word in Ephesians 4 that they are in Colossians 3. Same words. Now, someone might say, well, there's also uh, three of these other words that he doesn't mention in Ephesians, so why does he do that? that, that may be a, that's a valid question. However, that's actually not the case. He does mention all three of those things. He just takes a while to do it. 
Because in Ephesians 4, the theme all the way from chapter or from verse 1 all the way through verse 17 is unity within the body. And then he comes back to that point at the very end of the chapter by saying this. And be kind to one another. There's the word kind. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So he mentions those other three things in Ephesians 4 as well. And these are the seven foundational principles of unity and peace within the body of Christ. So, we talked about these quite a bit. And what I want to do this morning is actually take an opposite view. Because I think you can see these things within the story of Joshua 22. But you know, the story could have been very different. Very different. They could have went to war. And understand, these people have been at war a long time. They've got a lot of blood on their hands and they're not against going to war. But they didn't. And you know, when we look at these things side by side, we understand that there are things that work toward peace. There are foundations for peace and there are foundations for unity. But there are also things that keep the fires of war burning. And I want to talk about those things this morning and relate them somewhat to our story in Joshua. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these things. But I just want you to think for just a moment, what if we read this story and, and, and when they're approached, these people, they're puffed up with pride and they're harsh to one another and tempers flare. You, you know, you've seen that story in action before, haven't you? What about God's people? Paul says, to this you were called. To this you were called. And he said, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. What if this was the description of God's people? What would it look like? I'll tell you what it'd look like. It'd look like a big mass of chaos and destruction. That's what it would look like. And here's the reality. We, as God's people, are going to end up, maybe not in the exact same situation that they did in Joshua 22, but in similar situations like that, where we get upset at one another, we are divided from one another over so, some things that are just simply a misunderstanding. But there are things that cause us not to be able to come to the river, so to speak, and make peace. So as we go through these, I'm going to highlight these things on your left uh, in yellow. And sometimes there will be more than one of these things highlighted because they're not always independent. Sometimes they're related in the way that they work together. Proverbs 13.10 says, By pride comes nothing but strife. That's a pretty big statement, a very short statement, but a very big statement that pride leads to fighting. You think about people that get into fights. What's it usually over? It's ego. It's, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's egos get too big, and it's one ego against another ego, and then pretty soon there's violence, there's fighting, there's yelling. Pride always leads to strife. Here's something we can say. Pride doesn't lead to peace. It never leads to peace. If pride is in the equation, you can rest assured conflict is coming. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride goes before destruction. And the picture he's painting is as if here's pride and it's got a leash and it's dragging around behind it destruction. That's what the idea of goes before. Pride goes in front of destruction. And maybe you've seen that, a person who's very prideful that everything they do is destroyed. That's the nature of pride. I want you to think back to this story for a moment and think about 
these ten guys and, and Phineas walking up to them and going, why are you committing this treachery? You know, when somebody just walks up to me and accuses me of something, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to get defensive, don't you? And they could have been defensive because they were innocent. They, uh, you know, they weren't doing what they thought they were doing. But you know what they did? They just listened. That's what they did. They just listened. It could have been very different. You know, we kind of infer the tone about this, but, but here's a reality. If you align yourself with pride, you align yourself against God. We recognize this verse. We've talked about it a lot. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's what the word literally means, opposed to. You know what that word opposed is? It's the word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. To wrist, uh, to wrist, to resist means to range oneself against in battle. Read that again. God ranges himself against the proud. We make ourselves an enemy of God when we live in pride. Proverbs 15 and 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I, I would guess most of you memorize this scripture from a very young age. It's a, it's a very simple principle. It's one we talk about a lot, but I want you to think about Gad and Reuben and Manasseh as these men come and they accuse them of rebelling against God and telling them, you're about to go worship idols. If they would have answered them harshly, you may not have been able to stop the war. But he was calm and he took his time and he just explained their reason. And here's, here's the interesting thing about this. What was it that Eleazar, or I'm sorry, I keep saying Eleazar, Phineas, Eleazar's son, Phineas and the ten wanted, what did they want? They wanted to protect their people. What did Gad and Reuben and Manasseh want? They wanted to protect their people. That's what they wanted. And I think they kept that in mind as they communicated that this is not about whoever is there talking at the time. This is about everybody. And so they were calm and they answered gently. This word stirs up anger. I, I, I know if you've heard me talk about this, sometimes I've talked about the story where dad lassoed the wasp nest and stirred up the wasp. I won't bring that out. Yeah, we used to do remodel jobs and I remember one tip particular remodel job we did it was an old house and it was full of lath and plaster and it was the nastiest mess I've ever seen in my life and we we tried dad's method of of uh, demolition is surgical that's how he does demolition which I learned to appreciate after a while because surgical demolition is a lot cleaner this was not an option this stuff was just it was there and so we just we're taking hammers wonder bars little, you know, three pounds, whatever we can, and just beating these walls. And there's just this cloud of dust and dirt. And then you try to sweep it up. And you're trying to just get it done. And it's just, it's getting worse and worse. And eventually, I had to just leave the room. And I probably did that half a dozen times. Because it just, it just overwhelms you. And that's exactly the idea I think of. And that's what this word stirs up literally means. It means to ascend up or to rise up. If somebody comes against us and there's a misunderstanding and they accuse us of something, what should we do? Get angry? Puff our chest out? Fight? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to stir up anger. That's what you're going to do. Just wait. Think about it. 
Think before you speak. We talk about that a lot. And just answer calmly. And what happens? A soft answer turns away wrath. We can stop the war before the war starts. And that's exactly what these people did. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That is such a powerful statement because we minimize the impact of our words. We teach our children to minimize the impact of their words. Words hurt. Words kill. But words also bring life. And your words are important. What you say is important. How you say it is important. The volume at which you say something is important because death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. That word rest means resides in. You know, this is one of those wisdom statements that Solomon gives us that gives us a picture into why we're sometimes hot-tempered. Do you see it in the text? Why is it that people are hasty to be angry? Here's the answer. Because anger rests in their heart. It's not just something people were born with. It's not just a character flaw. That, that's not why we get hot-tempered. We get hot-tempered because we've got anger resting in our heart and it comes out. And he says, look, you've got to understand something. If anger is in your heart, if it's residing in your heart, he said, that's the way of the fool. And he said, don't be hasty in your spirit to be angry. And this is opposed to one of those seven foundations of preserving peace and unity. I, I tell you, if you've got a, a room full of hot-tempered people, sometimes unity and peace, they get thrown out the window really quick. And it's really hard to calm things down. But this is another one of those loud statements that's very short. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Read that again. Our anger, our wrath, never produces what is right. It doesn't produce what's right. John chapter 7 verse 24. One of the things that we read in Ephesians 4 as, as well as Colossians 3 was this idea of forbearing one another in love. Or as the King James puts it, bearing with one another. Which both of those mean to put up with, or as Justin talked about not long ago, to tolerate. To tolerate one another. And if you think about that idea versus this other idea of being quick to judgment, why is it that Jesus, as he walked around, everybody was accusing him? Well, they were proud. They were evil, they were wicked, but Jesus called out something also. He said, don't judge according to appearance, judge with righteous judgment. They were looking at the deeds that Jesus was performing and they were saying, oh, look at what he's doing, look at where he broke the law, look at this, look at, look at that. And Jesus says, you know, if you just stop and back up and quit just trying to make snap judgments about things and you'd really make a righteous judgment, you come to a completely different conclusion. You know what's real easy? To judge. It's real easy, isn't it? I do it all the time. We, we're, you're doing it right now. You say, oh, what am I doing right now? Well, you're watching me. You're watching my body language. Listen to my voice. You're judging right now. It's easy to judge. Why? Because that's what our minds do. You know what's really hard not to do? Judge unrighteously. 
Because we're always making these judgments all the time. And, and sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, sometimes my snap judgments are just no more than the result of laziness. Think about if these guys would have just made a snap judgment and they said, no, we're not even going to go talk to them. This, this is unforgivable. We're going to go wipe them out. Well, number one, that would have been a violation of Deuteronomy 13. It had been a violation of the law. But number two, it would have just went in and destroyed them for no reason at all. They'd have been caught up in the path of someone's judgment. And that happens with us, doesn't it? We're warned over and over throughout the New Testament to use righteous judgment. So what does righteous judgment look like? Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the, the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider this plank in your own eye? Or, can you, or how can you say to your brother, rather, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, Jesus points out something here. One of the things he points out is that there's an element of pride in unrighteous judgment. Because we're looking at somebody and he says, you're judging them for something, but you're not considering that when you judge somebody, you're also judging yourself by that same standard. So he's saying, you better be very careful about judging someone because whatever standard you're using to judge, that will be the standard that you will be judged with. But there's another element to this too. Why is it that we often make unrighteous judgment? Because our eyes don't see clearly. Did you pick that up? Verse 5, hypocrite, first remove the plank, then you can remove the speck. He didn't say don't remove the speck. He said, remove the speck, but remove the plank. Because I'll tell you what I don't want. I don't want someone digging in my eye to get a small thing out of it if they can't see straight. That's not helpful. You want an op optometrist coming in there with blinders on, working on your No, you don't want that. We've got to be able to see clearly to make righteous judgments. You know what? Sometimes we don't have the whole picture. So we may think we see clearly, but we don't. We don't have the whole picture. These guys didn't have the whole picture until they got there and talked to Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh. Then they could make a righteous judgment. Righteous judgment, though, it takes time, it takes work, and it takes effort. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. How many times have we accused somebody of something and then when they go to respond, we say, no, 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 no. That's falliness and shame. That's wrong. We got to have a listening ear. We can't, we can't decide what's right and wrong before we actually consider all the evidence. That's unrighteous judgment. Proverbs 18, 17, this is from the same chapter. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. We all understand this. You know how I know we understand this? Because this is how our judicial system works. You ever wondered why they didn't just have a judge? Why do they get 12 jurors? Why not just let the judge make the decision? Is every judge a good person? Are they always righteous? Is, is their judgment flawless? For that matter, the 12 jurors, their judgment may not be flawless, but why is, why is there, why is there uh, the reason why they made sure that there had to be more than one witness 
for you to take their testimony as valid. Because the first story you hear is the story that sounds right. So someone comes to them in Shiloh and says, they've built an altar, and everybody goes, they're pagans. (laughs) Why? Because the first story sounds like the right story. You know what what was wise? They went, they examined the evidence. They went to see if what they heard was really true before they acted on what they thought to be true. That's righteous judgment. You know, and here's the thing. We may go through the entire process and we may not have all the story and we may not be able to do anything. And that's okay. I'll tell you why. Because mercy is better than judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And, and, and really, it's better not to judge. There are times when we just can't help it. We, there, there's no other option. We have to judge. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, you have to judge this person. It's not optional. They're going to destroy the entire church. That's what these guys are looking at. It's not optional. We have to go there. We have to address this. We have to confront them because this could affect everybody. There wasn't an option. But in a lot of cases, it's better just not to judge, but just to be merciful and to forbear one another in love and be patient. 1 John chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18, but whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do you know why they went there? with softness in their voice because they recognized that's our brothers. They didn't want to go to war. They just wanted them to do what was right and make sure that what they were doing was right so it didn't affect everybody. You know, when we become uncaring, when we become uncaring, we have lost the real spirit of Christianity. What better description could we use to describe Christ than caring? Every person Jesus came in contact with, he cared about. When Jesus was met with people that other people didn't care about, and they said, look, he doesn't have time for you, Jesus said, bring them here. I've got time for them. He cared about people. We see this taught in the parable of what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where this man was beaten half to death and left on the side of the road. And you find it's interesting if you look at the details of the story. Jesus gave these characters for a reason. Because everybody looks at these characters and they think, oh, well, these are holy people. These are God's people. And so he says, now by chance a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Well, a priest, that's a, right, that's a person of God, right? Likewise, a Levite. Well, who's a Levite? Well, the Levites, they're the ones that make sacrifices for the people. They're the ones that work in the temple. They're obviously righteous people. But he did the same thing the priest did. He came and looked. He looked at the guy. You know what he did? He didn't care. He didn't care. And then Jesus tells him a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was. And when he saw him, he cared. He had compassion. Why did Jesus use a Samaritan in this story? Who were the Samaritans? You would say, well, that's someone from Samaria. That's right. But who was the Samaritan? I'll tell you who they were. 
they were the people who were in the target of Israel's racial hatred. That's who they were. Israel thought they were dogs. They weren't even people. You know what Jesus did? He elevated this dog above the highest order of Israel. That probably hurt a little bit, didn't it? Probably hurt a little bit. You know why? Because he had compassion, because he cared. That's who God is. God is never a God of apathy. Our Savior is never a Savior who does not care and who is cruel. This was cruel is what it was. That was cruel. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is actually for the New American Standard. And I did that because of the way this one phrase is worded. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Listen to this. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. It doesn't change the meaning of the other way it's translated. I think it's just a little bit more clear. We can see it a little more clear. Why is it that we get to the point where we don't care about people? Pride. Why'd that priest walk by? Because he thought his time was more valuable than that person's need. He didn't care. Listen, when we lose our care and our concern for one another, we will bite and devour one another. We will destroy each other. Finally, from Matthew chapter 18, 28 through 30, this is from the parable that Jesus told about forgiveness. And he talked about a king which would take account of his servants. And one of his servants was brought to him which owed him 10,000 talents, which was a, a huge debt that this man could never pay. He couldn't afford the debt. And that was the point of, of the 10,000 talents. He, he didn't, couldn't in his whole lifetime, if he had more time, pay that debt ever. And what happens is the king is moved with compassion. He cares for him and he forgives the debt. He just looses the debt. And then it says, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, that is a brother for our purposes, who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a easily payable debt. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. You know, this phrase right here shows us all three of these things. This man walks straight up to this guy and he lays hands on him. He grabs him by the throat. You ever been so angry with somebody you grabbed him by the throat? That's pretty angry. And he says, you pay me what you owe. You say, why do you think that's pride? I'll tell you why. Because this guy's just been forgiven 10,000 talents. And all of a sudden, after that being forgiven, all of a sudden he's better than this guy. So much better than him. You pay me what you owe me. And he's harsh and he's violent. And then we go on a little bit further in the narrative that Jesus gives us. And it says he would not. He would not. I want you to really take a hold of those words. It doesn't say he could not forgive. It's not what it says. It says he would not. You know what that means? He decided not to. He willed not to forgive. It wasn't 
that he didn't have the ability or the capacity to forgive, he in his cruelty and in his uncaring nature for his brother said, I won't forgive you. I won't. I'll tell you, there's not a more cruel thing that we could do than when somebody asks us for forgiveness to say no. That's cruel. That's cruel. All these people wanted was to make sure that they were able to come with them and worship God and have peace and have unity. And that's why I read the last of the story. They decided from that point on, we will never speak of going against them ever again. Why? We're satisfied. Colossians 3.14, revisiting this passage. Did you notice this when we read the text earlier? We talked about these seven foundations that he said, but above all these things, above these seven things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You know, here's a reality. A lot of times we think what's going to bind us together is because we all believe the same things. And I'm not saying that's not important that we all believe the same things, but that's not the bond of perfection. It's not. The fact we all live in Pampa, Texas is not the bond of perfection. The fact that some of y'all have known me for 41 years and I've known you for 41 years and you've all known each other for a very long time, just because we have a familiarity and a love for each other that's sort of more worldly than it is Christ-like, that's not the bond of perfection. What's the bond of perfection? It's real, true, godly love. I want to leave you with this today. I've highlighted the colors to show you that as Paul describes love, he describes all seven, all seven of these foundational principles for preserving unity and peace within the body. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It is not resentful. When we find ourselves lacking one of these things, here's what we need to do. We need to look into our heart and figure out where we're missing loving one another. You ever wonder why this chapter exists, this chapter on love? Is it just a generic thing that God just said, here, I'm going to inspire you to throw this in the middle of a book about love so you learn about love? You know what it was about? Go read chapters 1 through 12. You know what you had? The church at Corinth who were divided over doctrine, over ego. They were divided because they were considerate of one another. You read that about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. They had all kinds of division. And you know what he's saying? You're one body. That's chapter 12. You're one body. You're all important. You're all important part of the body. Love each other. It'll fix everything. That's your problem. You don't love one another. And if you love one another, everything will be fixed. What were these people worried about? I'll tell you what they were worried about. They were worried that every time they came and saw that river, that they would say, yep, see, God put a river. He put a river there to divide us from you. So you're over there and we're over here. And that's just how it is. Is that how we are? I'll tell you, it'd be real easy to do that. To just find some reason for me to be divided from you. Yep, it's there. 
some conflict we have with each other. We could put it there. We could put it as, as the Jordan River, and it could be the, the defining monument, the witness of our relationship. And every time I see you, I could go, nope, there's the Jordan River. I'm over here. You're over there. I'll tell you what we need. We need to remember the altar of witness. Not what divides us, but what unites us. But what unites us. That's all these people wanted. They just wanted them to remember we are God's people too. We're part of you. Don't remember the river. Remember the altar. Friends, today God has called us to peace. He's called us to love. He's called us to be all part of one body. And if you're not part of that body, we want to encourage you to become a part of that body today. To become part of God's people, his kingdom, a part of his family. And we offer an invitation of Christ at this time so that you can do that. If you are here today and you're already part of God's family, maybe you need something. Maybe you need strength. Maybe you need kindness. Maybe you need love. Maybe you need forgiveness from God. Whatever the case, we stand here ready today to assist you. Let us help you. Come have a seat as we stand and we sing.